I was on my way to the spring house to thaw out old Amos. All week long, I had felt winter was over, ever since the later afternoon light had held more blue than purple in it. I was now certain, having seen fuzz on the buds of the pussy willows. I had started at dawn, first setting the washer boiler bubbling on the kitchen stove, then building a fire outside under the soap kettle so there would be plenty of hot water to soak the frost out of them. I had made sure there was food left too, enough cornmeal and bacon to see them through to the June peas and the milk Betsy would give starting April when she calved. Now I felt quivery, anxious to see him, the elated way I had felt in those first years when he would come back whistling from his ship. To stop the trembling, I pulled my shawl tighter around my shoulders, stepping over the places where the sun had melted through the snow. The brown spots that marked the months since that morning when I had put him away in the spring house. It hadn't been as lonely as I had expected, living back there in that one room of the squat farmhouse parceling out to myself the mouthfuls of mush and tea. The way in which in the early days every Ontario woman had to do. Watching the scissors of the hills clip the days shorter and shorter as the winds came, creaking the pins of the old house. Even when I lay awake in the darkness, and ran my hand over the cold sheets where old Amos had lain so long beside me, I never doubted that he was merely asleep. All through those months, nothing had broken my belief that this had been the way to keep him alive. That is, nothing but the one exception. The beast, looking more than anything else, like a hank of black wool dragged along the ground. Our trouble had started with my breaking my glasses last spring, the night before the late frost that nipped the apple blossoms and wilted the seedlings Amos and I had set out in the back field. Resetting with plants from Montpellier had thrown them late getting in the potatoes, and when the crops were knee-high, ready to strip, the hail did that for them shredding the leaves into worthless ribbons, not enough to make it worthwhile putting into the curing shed. Then, right after the hail, the potatoes blighted, and within three days the vines were twisted and brown. When I dug them with the tined fork, there was only a bushel, no bigger than walnuts. At Halloween, Betsy dried up, a month ahead of time, cutting off our butter and milk for cooking. But somehow Amos didn't seem upset by any of this bad luck. He just went on reading his Bible at night and spending more and more time sitting, staring into the fire. He ate more too. It wasn't as if my father hadn't warned me about these Ontario men long before I had married Amos. 
appetites like draft horses. You'll never be able to fill him up, he had said. Not that Amos hadn't turned out to be a good provider. Once he had set his hand to farming our upland, he could pitch two loads of hay to any Ontario man having the chest and arm muscles of a seafarer. But now he was 78, come spring, spending most of the daylight dozing by the fire. Not that it was so bad having him underfoot as his tarnation appetite, like my father had warned me. It was November in the morning, while I was laying the strips of bacon over the top of the pot of beans that I got the idea. Something about covering the beans made me recall a tale that my grandfather used to tell me. It had happened a hundred years ago, in the next county, when this whole part of the province still belonged to another part of the province and the Indians used to sweep down every fall, burning the barns and driving off the cattle. My grandfather had been just a young shaver one year, the food ran low, but he could remember what they had done with the old folks, how they had built pine boxes and carted them out to the ledge. I glanced over at Amos, feeling guilty at my thought. He was yawning, bending over to draw on his felt boots. It would keep him from suffering, I told myself for he so loved to eat. Now it was dropping below zero at night. It wasn't a mite too soon. I would start it tonight. When he closed the door on his way to the barn to throw a bundle of fodder into Betsy's rack, I knew there was no time to lose. I would need something to make him sleepy. The hard cider, half-frozen in the entry, would mix well with the beans. I spooned out a place in the pot and poured in a cupful. By the time he was back, smelling of the stall, I had his last meal on the table, his plate piled high with beans, a spiced pearmain right on the rim, and a mold of upturned red jelly at his elbow. I dallied with my fork, watching him while he scooped up the beans, gulping them and smacking his lips. He told me I was the best cook in Ontario. He pushed back his plate and walked over to the mantel for his pipe. I watched him cram the bowl with dried leaf from a last year's hank I had brought down the day before from the loft. Somehow that evening it seemed fitting he should read to me from the Bible. When I had drawn my cane chair up to the fire and placed my knitting basket on my knee, I nodded when he looked at me, the way he always did, to see if I wanted him to read aloud. I picked up the book from the table by the window where I kept my geraniums, and settling into the rocker, he carefully opened it at the red ribbon. The words seemed to fit into what I had decided. Amos closed the book, leaned back, and stared into the fire. I stopped knitting, 
watching him. The words made it right and proper and the only way out. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Now the winds that had been making the pins of the old house creak died away, and the old house seemed to be holding its breath, listening with me for the first sound that would show he was asleep, the first fluttering like the open stop on an old melodeon. At the sound, I knew I must hurry. I lit the lantern and set it on the window where it would shine on the porch and into the yard. I dropped to my knees and carefully pulled off his felt boots. Then I kicked off my house slippers and slid my feet into the boots. They smelled of the stall, hot and moist like manure. Then I rolled down his socks and unbuttoned his faded blue shirt. Have to let the zero air get to him fast, I remembered the way my grandfather had explained the pioneers did it to their old folks. The coal had to freeze them in a jiffy, turning them solid like fish jigged through the ice. Amos was still snoring, bolt upright in the rocker, his head back, his mouth open, his breath fluttering his lips, making the ends of his gray mustache wave like feelers. I reached over pulled the Bible free of his hands and laid it back on the table. I slipped on my mittens, wrapped the shawl around my shoulders and tied a fascinator under my chin. I was ready. Grasping the back of the rocker, I slid it over the bare planks like a sled. At the door, I wriggled the rungs over the sill to the porch and so into the yard. The rocker sank into the snow and I had to pull hard to drag it across the yard halfway to the spring house where I knew the wind would strike hard and fast. It was already tugging at my fascinator, wriggling under my shawl, flapping at my woolen skirt. Rest here, Amos, I tried to say, but my teeth were chattering, the front of my legs burning from the cold. For a second I looked at him, sitting there in the light of the lantern, the strong man I had married now more like a scarecrow left in a winter cornfield. Quickly, to bid him goodbye, I stooped over and kissed him on the cheek. Then, turning, I shuffled into the house with the devils of the cold whistling after me. Indoors, I swung the wooden bar in place over the door, blew out the lantern, and throwing aside my wraps, put another chunk of wood on the fire. As the eager flames leapt up, I huddled in my chair, shivering, not daring to look toward the window, listening to the flames crackle over the gray wood. Too much of the cold had gotten into my bones, the way it was crawling into Amos, draining the warmth from his bare feet, sliding an icy hand under his blue shirt, circling his heart, the relentless way the flame was turning the log into white crumbling ash. But I'll wake him in the spring, I thought. 
Next morning, a spot of sunshine stroked my hand, woke me up by its warmth the way Amos used to stoop over and touch my arm. I had fallen asleep in my chair, huddled over like a sack of grain all night. I twisted my neck to free it of needles, looking across the room at the table, half expecting to see him sitting there, watching me, smiling with his water-blue eyes. But the place where his chair sat was empty. The fire had gone out in the wood stove. The fireplace was black, and the room was stark cold. I hurried to the window. The jagged limbs of the pines sagged with their burden of white. The roof of the shed and spring house were padded a foot high with cotton, and the sun shone on a hummock of white in the center of the yard. I forced my swollen feet into the damp, cold boots. I must hurry. Now the sun was up, there wasn't a minute to lose. I grabbed a willow broom from the porch and brushed wildly at the mound of snow, sending it billowing, leaving Amos sitting there upright and almost indignant at the way I had left him. But not the same way. For his mustache was rigid with frost. His eyes were closed as if he had slept through the night, and except for his gray hair and mustache, he looked like the young man I had married the young Ontario man. The brown splotches on the back of his hands were white. I pulled off my mittens to touch his cheek, now free of wrinkles. It felt cold and smooth as ice, and I drew back fearing my hand might stick to it, the way fingers will stick to a steel blade. Inside. I must get him inside at once. The sun was shining full in his face, but he didn't move or open his eyes. I grabbed the uprights of the chair and slid it through the snow toward the spring house. I grabbed the latch of the spring house door, but it didn't budge. The bottom was locked in the ice. I ran to the woodshed, grabbed the hatchet from the nail, and hacked at the frozen sill, pulling at the door until I forced it open. I backed down the steps, pulling at the chair. It had stuck in the drift, but it suddenly gave way and half slid, half fell toward me. I tried to hold it back, but the weight of the body pushed me aside, the chair tilted, and Amos fell with a thud on the dirt floor of the spring house, beside the trough where I had set crocks of milk. At first, when I caught my breath, I expected him to sit up and scold me for being so careless but he didn't protest or even open his eyes. He just lay there half coiled up like a sleeping groundhog, taking no thought for the morrow, what he should eat or what he should put on. I pulled the chair to one side and grabbing a burlap sack from a hook, laid it over his head and shoulders like a quilt. I looked around for another sack to cover his blue feet and vein-lined ankles sticking out below the overalls. But there wasn't anything else. At that, I hurried out. 
slamming the door and driving the hatchet into the sill to make certain the door remained closed until spring. In the months that followed in the old house, I had never doubted that I would wake him up, except on nights when the wind beat sleet against the panes and the timbers of the old house creaked. But by morning my faith returned with the light and I felt he was safe. What mystified me was this, something I could never identify. The hank of black wool dragged along the snow by a rope. At first I blamed the whiteness of the snow and what it did every winter to my eyes. I knew I should have gone into town last year to have my lenses replaced, but when, without really looking up, I caught flashes of black out of the corner of my eyes while I mixed the cornmeal or stirred the buckwheat batter at evening, I accepted it as something that was sharing my loneliness, and I named the black object the beast, knowing that was what Amos would have called it had he been there with me. When I waited at the window, evenings, while the shadows from the pines turned the snow deep purple, it never seemed to come. And then, just when I had forgotten about it, there it would be, slipping out of the woods, along the hummock this side of the pines, dipping out of sight where the meadow fell away toward the creek. If I stood fascinated, waiting until it disappeared, that would be the last glimpse that evening. But if I turned away, I saw something make a quick dash along the edge of the shed, as if somehow it sought shelter with me for the night. I always fed Betsy while it was still light, not wanting to meet up with the beast face to face, have it come dashing around the edge of the barn, running through my legs, upsetting me in the snow. By January, I had come to feel it was my own doubt slipping into my mind to plague me, being there and yet not a part of my life as if it were glimpses of Amos, shoveling a path carrying in wood from the shed or dragging hay from the rick for Betsy. Then the dusk was too deep to make out his figure, but only to show something shapeless moving out there, the way the thing moved when I wasn't expecting it. But now the day for the reawakening had come, now that I had the water boiling and the wash boiler in the kitchen and outdoors in the soap kettle, now that the sun was shining full on the spring house ahead of me in water dripping from icicles over the door the months that had passed seemed part of a dream hidden under the surface of my mind that at last i would be about to see amos again talk to him it was like holding a letter unopened in the pocket of my apron the way i used to do whenever he was away it was joy held back, but contained inside. Surely there, the way he was safe, asleep inside the springhouse. 
I smiled, thinking of watching his cheeks turn pink, seeing the first flicker of movement come into his face, then watching his eyes open and seeing me, watching his happiness unfold with mine. Now that I was near the door, my throat ached in eagerness to say his name, and when I stooped over to pull the hatchet from the sill, my hand was trembling so that I had to try twice before the hatchet budged. When the hatchet came away, the door swung open, and I hurried inside. It was dark, but I could hear the water gurgling in the basin where I kept the crocks of milk. I smelt the mustiness of the old beams, and then looking down, the back of my neck suddenly felt numb, and his name froze on my lips. For on the floor where Amos had fallen, where I had covered him with the burlap sack, there lay a bundle of rags. My eyes raced over the dark room, seeking him feeling he must be playing a joke on me, hiding. He had to be here. My eyes came back to the pile of rags, fumbling over a sleeve of the faded shirt and a leg of the torn overalls. With a bang, the door swung shut and the latch clicked. And in the sudden darkness, I felt my fingers closing tighter around the handle of the hatchet for mixed with the mustiness of the beams was a new odor that stung my nostrils. The odor of something wild and bitter. Then along the wall beyond the bundle of rags I saw an oval of light under the stones where a hole had been dug. And in the hole I made out an animal lying there watching me. Its lower lids hung flabby from the red eyes, the way Amos's eyes had looked that last evening while he was staring into the fire. Its jowls sagged away from yellow teeth and its black body was stretched out, crouching in the hole, ready to spring. It was the beast. It was the animal that had cheated me. It had stolen Amos while I had thought he was safe inside the stone house. This was the beast that plagued my dreams. On the very day when I had planned to thaw out Amos, it had turned my hopes into a nightmare. Now I could see that its tongue was blood red and that its long claws were flexing, eager to leap at my throat. Deep inside me, fierce anger welled and surged. Holding back my sobs stopped me from trembling. I tightened my grip on the hatchet. I had shared my winter with this beast, letting it go its way undisturbed, and it had used my need for companionship to rob me. I struck out furiously, wildly, lunging at its head, half expecting it to fling itself at me. But even as I struck, I saw it close its eyes and turn its head, the way Amos had coiled on his side on the floor that morning. The blade cut in dully. The way an axe sinks into a frozen pumpkin, not cutting as much as breaking it apart. The beast didn't shriek or flail about, but gave a long sigh, like air escaping from a dry pump. 
as though it were quite dead before I struck it. Only then did I realize that from then on I would be quite alone, and the sobs I had been holding back rose above the gurgling of the water in the basin.